Good morning. It's been a difficult week, hasn't it? Hands up if you cried on Wednesday night. Absolutely good. I was absolutely, I was so excited to be preaching on a day of the World Cup final. Like, I was, I was going to wear my England shirt, I might have even painted my face, it was going to be amazing. We could have all chanted it's coming home, um, and it all went wrong, didn't it? <laughs> um, it just feels a bit sad to be preaching on a World Cup final, but at least we can all concentrate now. I was worried that no one would be able to focus on the sermon because you'd all be thinking about the football, but at least your minds won't be elsewhere this morning. Okay, so this morning we're continuing our series in the book of Acts. We're near the end of it now, all right? The story of the early church exploding and growing through the power of the Holy Spirit. What we find in Acts is a people on fire for God, uh, full of his Holy Spirit, and that is what makes the church grow. That's the key to the book of Acts, isn't it? It's people on fire for God. It's people transformed by his Holy Spirit. That's the key to the church growing and... um, there's so much that we as people can learn about that. You know, we need to be people who are on fire for God. Let's, let, let's start with a hard-hitting point right at the start. We need to be people who are on fire for God. We need to be people who are full of his Holy Spirit, and that is how the church grows, yeah? And often we can use the book of Acts as like a blueprint for how a church can grow. You know, we can look at it as a blueprint of how the early church kind of thrived and flourished. And, and the book of Acts is that, you know, it is all of that. It, it shows us how we can uh, grow as a church. But the book of Acts is also a book filled with individual stories, okay? Stories of individuals overcoming different obstacles and different uh, problems which they face, okay? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be looking at one of these problems. We're going to be looking at Paul and his time on trial in Jerusalem. So Paul was put on trial in Jerusalem, uh, and his crime was being a Christian. All right, so he's put up in a courtroom, and his trial was being a Christian. This morning, I want to look at what we as Christians can do to defend our faith. All right, when we're asked questions, or maybe even mocked for being Christians. Not only that, though, in a more slightly positive circumstance, you know, when our friends ask us questions about what we believe in, how can we answer them? When our friends ask us questions about Christianity, what sort of things can we do to help them to understand? All right. So this morning, I'm going to unpack a little bit about what it means to defend our faith. And the passage from the book of Acts, all right, about uh, Paul's trial, actually stretches over a number of chapters. So I'm not going to read it all because we'll be here all day. Okay, so I'm just going to summarize it and then we're going to focus on one particular chapter from Acts 26. And all the words from Acts 26 will be on the screen behind me. All right, so just to summarize, so um, Paul, after his miraculous conversion where he met Jesus, uh, completely changed his life. He's been traveling around, all right, speaking at different churches and supporting different churches. So that's been Paul's job. After his life was changed completely by Christ, he's taken it upon himself to go and support different churches. He, he's got sort of an, an apostolic role, all right? He goes and supports church leaders, similar to what we see with Jeremy and the team from Christ Central, where they'll come and support church leaders and support us as a church for different periods of time, all right? So he's been supporting church leaders and helping them with some of the day-to-day problems um, that the church faces, And then he's heading into Jerusalem, all right? And at the start of Acts 21, what we see is a prophet named Agabus comes to Paul and gives him this prophecy, all right, that he's going to hit trouble when he gets to Jerusalem. All right, and this this prophet uses illustration using Paul's belt, all right? Yeah, you should read about it in the book of Acts, all right? And um, basically what he says is that Paul is going to face trouble when he gets to Jerusalem. All right, he's saying, don't go. You're going to face trouble when you get there. 
And uh, Paul's companions get a little bit uh, spooked by that. They get a little bit worried by that. They start trying to kind of persuade him not to go. And what we see in Acts 21.13 is an amazing quote from Paul. Check this out. He says this. He says, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Wow. Anyone want faith like that, by the way? Ready to die for God. The attitude of trust in God, that reliance on him, that firm foundation in God, is something that we should all crave. Something that we should all want. After that, Paul goes into Jerusalem, where he's seized by a massive mob of Jewish people. The Bible says that people literally ran at him from every direction, grabbing him and dragging him around. Okay. He's in a bit of a pickle. And because of all the commotion, the Roman guards came down and arrested Paul, probably for his own safety. They wanted to know what was going on. Why was this mob attacking this guy? So the Roman soldiers, um, they, they arrested Paul and took him into the prison. Okay. What happens then, though, is Paul addresses the crowds. Okay, so Paul gets an opportunity to speak to them. Imagine that scene, by the way. You've had a crowd of people ready to rip your limb from limb, and you get up and start preaching to them. Like, you guys aren't scary at all, so this is fine. But imagine if you wanted to rip your limb from limb and I had to get up and speak to you. That'd be a different thing, wouldn't it? <laughs> and do you know what? Um, Paul addresses the crowd. He shares his testimony in front of him. He shares about his life. And he starts speaking to the crowd about how God has called him to, to preach to all people and not just Jewish people. All right? And the result of that is that Jewish people are more determined than ever to have him killed. Okay, there's a, there's a plot from the Jewish leaders to have Paul, uh, Paul killed. So the Roman soldiers agree to send him on to a place called Caesarea, all right, where he stands trial before a guy called Felix, who was the governor of that area. And Paul's kept in prison for two years, waiting for his trial, right? Two years. And uh, after two years, Felix uh, is replaced by a guy called Festus, and Paul has to come out and argue his faith once again. All right, and, and this guy, Festus, has no idea what to do, so he speaks to a king called Agrippa, and Paul again, for a third time, has to defend his faith in front of King Agrippa. Okay, and this is where we're going to pick up the story in Acts 26 from verse 1. The word's going to be on the screen behind me. Right, so Paul says, so then Agrippa said, Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted uh, with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So Paul goes on to share his testimony about how he was once a persecutor of the Christian tribe, but after meeting Jesus, he's become a person who wants to tell people about God. All right. Uh, so we skip on to verse 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then King Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, 
I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him, the governor and Bernice and all us sitting with them. And after they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that um, you give us uh, the tools, Lord, to defend our faith, Lord. Lord, you give us the tools to speak up, Lord, to people about you and about what makes us believe what we believe, God. Lord, I thank you for this passage and uh, for Paul's boldness, Lord, to stand up and defend his faith, God. And Lord, I pray this morning as we uh, unpack some different ways to defend our faith, Lord, would you really inspire us, Lord? Would you really give us a, a real kind of boldness and a real trust in ourselves to go out and defend you in front of others, God? Lord, I pray would you open our hearts this morning. Amen. Okay, so it's a lot to get through this morning, all right? And there's a lot to learn from Paul about how we can defend our faith. And as I said it right at the beginning, defending our faith, it won't always be a negative thing, all right? It's not going to be us arguing all the time. Don't think that, okay? We're probably very unlikely to be put on trial like Paul was to defend our faith, all right? We're blessed to live in a nation where we're free to practice our faith. A lot of people aren't. Do you know, last week we were at our devoted Acosta meeting in Stockton, all right? And uh, during the meeting, there was a guy sat there, just minding his own business in Costa, just doing some work in his laptop, having a coffee, and we're uh, worshipping and stuff, okay? And uh, at the end of the meeting, we see this guy kind of looking at us, and he, uh, he comes up to the front, and he, he just shares this amazing testimony. So this man's from Eritrea, okay, in Africa, and he stands up and he shares this story about how amazing it was to see us... Uh, kind of worshipping God in public, in a public place in the middle of Costa. He gets up and he says, you know what, in my nation you couldn't do that. It's illegal to do that. You guys, it's amazing that you can stand up and sing about Jesus and pray in, in, in public. And he said that the Holy Spirit had really touched him from that. He's just a randomer. He just, just saw it. It was amazing. Um, so we live in a society where we're free to practice our faith. So we're probably not going to get put on trial for it. All right. And we also live in a society which, for the most part, is relatively tolerant when it comes to religion. All right? Some people aren't, all right? but for the most part, relatively tolerant when it comes to religion. People probably aren't going to criticise our faith in a negative way that often. They're probably not going to put us on a spot to defend it in an extremely negative way. You might get the odd person, but often people are going to be quite um, uh, accepting of people's beliefs. All right? At least that's what kids are taught in school these days. <laughs> What we might have, though, is an opportunity to answer some questions about our faith when we're asked. Yeah? yeah? We might get an opportunity to do that. You know, they might not always ask the questions nicely, but we'll often be given an opportunity to answer questions about our faith. And the Bible's really clear about what we should do in that. Uh, there's an amazing verse in 1 Peter 15. It says this. It says, For in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. You know, as Christians, we do need to be prepared to give an answer to questions about our faith. And what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to give us some different ways in which we can defend our faith, all right? And um, some different kind of methods and things we can use. Does that sound okay? All right. So the first way we can defend our faith, and this is my personal favourite because it's the easiest, okay, is by sharing our own personal story. That's an amazing way of defending our faith. Paul does this at various points throughout his trials, uh, and the best thing about our personal story is that it's our own life. And people can't argue with that. It's your own life. 
people can't argue with that. Jubilee, we ourselves are the best examples that we can use to point others towards God. Look back at the passage I read from 1 Peter. It says, give a reason for the hope you have. What that says to me is that people should look at us and see something different. They should look at us as Christians and see something different. They should see a hope that they themselves don't have. And then we should be able to give a reason for that hope. When they look at us, they should see a life that is different. And the way this verse is written seems to suggest that there's something about us as Christians that people will find appealing. And there's a challenge in there. Is your life appealing to others? Like, do you have levels of joy that can't be matched? When people look at you, do they see something different about you? Do you have a a self-confidence that shows that you must be living for something more than the day-to-day things of life? Do you have an almost a a sense of of, of fun and joy that people just can't put their finger on? Do you know, I remember the first two Christians I ever met, all right, was a couple called Andy and Esther Long, and they were Methodist youth workers in Darlington, all right, and they were perfect examples of this point. Because looking at them, you could just see that there was something different about them. They had joy. Like, we gave them a hard time as kids, all right? They led this uh, youth group in a quite a rough part of Darlington, and as kids, we give them a hard time. They'd be up there every week talking about Jesus, and we just take the mick. They'd be up there, you know, praying for us, and, and we'd just be, like, messing around, kicking footballs at them, all right? But these guys, each week, would respond to us with joy and kindness. And do you know what? As much as anything they ever said to me about Jesus the thing that convinced me to take them seriously was their lives, was how they kind of held themselves. Because I knew there was something genuine about these people. Julie, let's be people who live lives that are different. Let's show that we're different to what people would normally see in the world. Let's have joy. Like, Christians would never smile. I don't get that. I don't get it. You've got something to smile about. Like, we've got a relationship with a living God. Why aren't you smiling? <laughs> Do you know what? We, our lives need to demonstrate something of God. This idea of our lives demonstrating our faith is something in which we do really, really well in Jubilee. Do you know what? A lot of the things we do in church demonstrate this idea perfectly. Like Open Door and Hope Foundation and Sparklers and, and even our football team. All of these things give us an opportunity to show people that we are different. We allow our, our lives to speak volumes about our faith. Yeah? Practically, though, there's more than that when it comes to defending your faith using your own life. Okay? See, we all have a story to tell. And that story is an amazing thing. Why? Because that story involves God saving you. But how do you tell your story? People often say, how do I tell my story? And it's really simple, okay? There's three parts of your story you can tell, all right? What were you like before God? What led you to find God? And what were you like after you met God? Simple as that. What were you like before God? What led you to find God? And what were you like after God? We can all do that, can't we? You know, sometimes I hear people say to me, well, I don't have much of a story to tell. And I'm like, you don't? Like, you, you've experienced the living God and you don't have a story to tell? 
you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, you'd have a story to tell. Come on. <laughs> Do you know what? We all have a story to tell. Give God the glory and tell your story. Yeah, that is an amazing way of defending our faith. You know, one of my, a big piece of advice about telling your story is not to be afraid to mention Jesus either. How has Jesus impacted you? It says clearly, Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It also says in the book of Philippians that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's one powerful name, isn't it? Let's not be afraid to mention Jesus. Yeah? Our lives haven't changed because of positive thinking or because of circumstances. No, they've changed because of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. Mention Jesus' name when you're telling your story. All right, I'm going to give you a practical challenge now. Okay. This week, all right, why don't you write your testimony down? All right, those three points I said. What were you like before you knew God? What led you to finding God? And what you're like after you've met God? All right, why don't you write that down? No more than one side of A4 and email it to me. Okay? Everyone, I want you all to do this, all right? Gav at jct.church is my email address, okay? Gav at jct.church. Please email me your story because we want to share some of these out to encourage people about our own lives, to encourage people what Jesus has done in this church, all right? Who's up for that? Yeah, one side of A4, write your story down, email it, gav at jct.church, and we'll share some of these out, all right? Might even put it on social media. We'll make sure all your names are out of there. We'll have a, a funky hashtag, hashtag Jubilee Stories, all right? And we'll, uh, we'll share some of these to encourage us as a church, all right? That's this week. A little challenge for you all. All right. And you know what? When you share your story, you might end up getting different types of responses, okay? That's the reality of it. And it won't always be positive either. When you share your story to people, you won't always get a positive response. Look at how the king responded in this story. He says to Paul, he says, you're out of your mind. Or to make it a little bit more side, are you mad? You know, sometimes people won't be positive about our story. That's okay. Look at how Paul reacts. He says, <laughs> he says, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. Do you know what? Our story is always going to be true because it's our life. It's always going to be reasonable because it happened to us. Now, people will be able to see that it's reasonable because you're standing right in front of them. So if you tell them about how God's brought you great joy and comfort and you're stood there smiling your head off, they're going to know that that's true and reasonable. They can't argue with that. Our own personal testimony and our own life is a perfect way of defending our faith. Now, if people ask questions about what makes Christianity different from other religions, your life should be the answer. Yeah. Don't be afraid to use your own story as a way of pointing people towards Jesus. All right. Okay, moving on. So another way we can defend our faith is by using the Bible. All right. If we look back in the passage, uh, we see that this is something which Paul relies on. In verse 27, as a way of proving that what he was saying was reasonable, Paul points Agrippa to the prophets. He says, I know you believe in the prophets. He points Agrippa back to the Bible, to the Old Testament. To the Old Testament. All right. We need to know that we have this word, we have this truth as our defense. Yeah? The Bible is our defense. But can we trust the Bible? A lot of people will give reasons why they feel like we can't trust the Bible. I just want to unpack a couple of these, all right? Um, one of the things which people may say about the Bible, and certainly about the Gospels, is that they're made up. 
They'll say, do you know what? This stuff's all made up, written by people in order to ensure that the news of Christianity spread and the church grew. That's one of the things people might say. And what we see, however, though, is that the Gospels themselves are far too detailed to be made up or just to be a legend. All right. There's an interesting chapter in a, a book by Tim Keller called uh, The Reason for God Where He Unpacks This Idea. Let me just read this quote for you. Okay, it says, The gospel accounts are not fiction. In Mark 4, we're told that Jesus was asleep on a cushion in the stern of a boat. In John 21, we're told that Peter was 100 yards out in the water when he saw Jesus on the beach. He then jumped out of the boat and together they caught 153 fish. In John 8, as Jesus listened to men who caught a woman in adultery, adultery, we're told that he doodled with his finger in the dust. We're never told what he was writing or why he did it. None of these details are relevant to the plot or character development at all. If you or I were making up an exciting story about Jesus, we would include such remarks just to fill out the story's realism. But that kind of fictional writing was unknown in the first century. The only explanation for why an ancient writer would mention the cushion, the 153 fish, and the doodling in the dust is because these details must have been retained in the eyewitness's memory. All right, That's what the scholars of these ancient writings would conclude. That's how historians would look at this evidence. You know what? The Bible isn't made up. It simply can't be. The style of writing, the detail of the writing, that, that sort of writing didn't exist at that time. The Bible can't be made up. Another reason that people might say that we can't trust the Bible is due to culture. People use remarks like, you know, the Bible was uh, all well and good, but for a different time period. That's what people sometimes say. And they may say that the Bible uh, and what the Bible teaches is obsolete and even offensive in the 21st century. Has anyone heard that one before? And a good way of counteracting all of this, all right, is to first ask the person to be specific. Okay, what exactly is it that you think is offensive in the Bible? Because often these texts can be cleared up by a good Bible commentary, okay, um, which will look at the specific author, the time, and intended purpose of the text. All right, let me give you a quick example, okay? One thing which people might say is obsolete or for a different time is a verse in Ephesians where it says, Slaves, obey your masters. Okay, People might look at that and suggest that the Bible can't be trusted because it supports slavery. All right, but if we look at the time when that passage was written, slaves were very different to what we would see as slaves today. All right? Slaves in that time would actually be paid a wage and could even eventually buy themselves out of slavery. They were not segregated and they looked the same as everyone else. The slave that it talks about in that passage is very different to what we would think about today as a slave, someone who's taken by force and forced to do things that they don't want to do. All right? The Bible speaks clearly about that sort of trafficking. Okay? By looking in the Bible in enough detail and studying it properly, we can see that it can be trusted today. All right? The third big issue people might have with the Bible is that they might say it's not accurate. Who's heard this one before? How can something which has been copied down from generation to generation be accurate? Some parts could get lost. Other bits might have been added. Again, if you look at the evidence, that's actually another big myth. 
You see, the original text of every book of the Bible has been extremely well preserved and its message is still able to come through extremely clearly. Let me explain, all right? So first of all, we have a lot of copies of ancient manuscripts from both the Old and New Testaments. These have been discovered all over the Middle East and Europe. And what we see is that the text in these, in each of these, is remarkably similar, showing that the information was passed down well. And the copies of these manuscripts are actually extremely good. They're excellent quality and well-preserved. And this can help us to trust the authority of the Bible and feel confident in being able to use the Bible to defend our faith. There's many different copies of the ancient texts, all remarkably similar. That gets rid of that idea that the text has been changed over time, doesn't it? Yeah? Do you believe we can trust the Bible? We need to know that the Bible is true. It's the very word of God. It's God-breathed, it's God-inspired. We have the very word of God as our defense, and that can make a real difference. Do you know what? We're not relying on our own words, our ideas. We're relying on the word of God. And that's something which really helps me, okay, because the thought of having an intellectual debate scares me. I remember a few years back... um, chatting to someone uh, uh, who, who was part of this church and he was having this intellectual massive debate with me and using these words I didn't have a clue about. And I just remember looking at him thinking, uh-oh. And I remember being really, like, gutted. Like, I went, it was at a men's weekend, actually. Remember those men's weekends we used to have? It was at a men's weekend. I remember going home being absolutely gutted and thinking, do you know what? Like, I'm, I'm supposed to be getting up and, and preaching and, and I can't have an intellectual debate. I'm supposed to be uh, the leader of our youth group and I can't have an intellectual debate. And I remember being absolutely gutted and thinking, I can't be a leader. But do you know what? That's a terrible attitude to have. <laughs> do you know what? If you feel like you're not intellectual enough to defend your faith, all right, think again. Because you've got everything you need right here. All right? If you've ever come away from a conversation with someone feeling disappointed that you're not intellectual enough, all right, please, please, please move on from that. Please don't be discouraged by that, all right? Honestly. We have the perfect evidence. We have the word of God. Don't get caught up in intellectual debates. Don't get caught up in using big words. Use the word of God. See, the good thing about the Bible is it actually tells us about God. It tells us about his character. See, Christianity is based on understanding that God has not left the world in darkness about who he is. See, God has revealed himself in Scripture. He's told us who he is. He's told us why we're here. He's told us what's gone, with our world, uh, what's gone wrong with our world. And he's told us what he has done to put it right. Everything that we need is in the Bible. The Bible literally gives people an idea of who God is. And that's an amazing tool that we can use to defend our faith. All right. So we've got our own stories. And we've got the Bible two amazing things to defend our faith. The final point I want to make this morning is about what we can learn from Paul in terms of our motivation for defending our faith. Why bother? Why bother defending our faith? See, what stands out to me about Paul is the sheer faith and trust he puts in God despite this difficult situation. See, from his time arriving in Jerusalem, Paul knew he was heading into a difficult situation. He knew he was going to have to stand up and defend his faith. And that isn't something to put him off. 
So Paul could have easily avoided Jerusalem and even stopped preaching altogether. He could have joined a local church somewhere uh, and preached to a local converse, uh, congregation and had a happy life. But Paul knew that God had more for him than that. Paul knew that God had called him to this apostolic role which would result in many new believers and a thriving church. More than that, though, Paul had a confidence in God. He fully trusted in what he was saying and he fully trusted in God's provision. And he fully trusted in God's will for his life. Do you know, I feel like Paul actually saw this difficult situation as an opportunity, as a chance to share the gospel with people, whatever the cost for him would be. I mean, that's massive for us. I think we can take something from that. Like, I don't know about anyone else, but often when it comes to these big questions, these big conversations about faith, I tend to get a bit worried. I worry about offending people, or I worry about people thinking that I'm weird. <laughs> In reality, though, what have we got to lose? You know what? When someone asks you a question about your faith, and you give them an answer, the worst case scenario is that you're going to get laughed at, or maybe even verbally abused, big deal. All right. They might laugh at you. They might call you a weirdo. They might even swear at you. So what? Paul was put on trial. <laughs> Paul was facing much worse than that. But even then, he saw that difficult situation as an opportunity. Why? Because of his faith in God. Yeah. Check out this quote by Tom Wright. Uh, by the way, if you, if you want a good Bible commentary, all right, to read, I mentioned commentaries earlier. Uh, Bible commentaries just kind of unpack what the text's saying in a lot more detail. If you want a good Bible commentary to read, um, read something by Tom Wright, okay? The one about Acts is called Acts for Everyone, and um, he's written commentaries in a lot of the books in the Bible. He has a style of writing these commentaries which really, uh, it was really simple and helps you to understand them, okay? Often you can be put off reading these Bible commentaries because they're big, massive books and really old and got complicated words in, all right? Start with Tom Wright's books, really clear easy to understand. All right. It's a bit of advice for you. Okay, here's a quote from Tom Wright about this point. This is what he says. He says, Paul knew that he was facing an extremely difficult situation, but he also knew that the Lord was going to stand by him. That is an important moment. Paul's moment of crisis becomes a moment of vision. The Lord was going to stand by him. We Christians often sell ourselves short by quietly forgetting these moments or not taking them for fear of other people not understanding or thinking that we're making it all up. Jubilee, what are those moments for you? What are those moments of difficulty or challenge um, which could become an opportunity for you? Who are your friends or work colleagues who have a lot to say about Christianity? Who are your friends who have a lot to say about moral issues? Who are those friends who are almost quite negative about Christianity and want to talk about it all the time? Sometimes, those who are most vocal about faith and moral issues, either positively or negatively, are those who are actually closest to finding God. Do you know what? I had a, I've got a group chat with uh, two of my friends from work, and we had this like, two-hour debate the other night about, um, about marriage in our group chat. And I remember thinking, I'm right back in the corner here, but I embraced every minute of it. Why? Because these guys were asking questions. God, what do you think about marriage? God, what does the church say about marriage? God, what does the Bible say about marriage? It was scary, <laughs> but it was a great opportunity. What are those opportunities for you? 
Don't shy away from those conversations. It's challenging, but we need boldness and confidence to speak Christian views into conversations where appropriate. All right, where appropriate. That's key. That confidence and that boldness comes from a faith in God's. Are you praying for and making the most of these divine encounters? Or are you too busy and distracted by life that you're letting them pass you by? The challenge there. You know, from, from tomorrow, why not start asking God every morning to highlight a person for you to share something of Jesus with? How good would that be? Check out this Bible verse uh, from Colossians. It's Colossians 4.3. It says, And pray for us too that God may open the door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. That's important. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. That's a prayer every morning for us, isn't it? That's a prayer for us. Let's look for those opportunities to share Christian views, to share our stories, to share the Bible with others. See, the truth is that all of us are going to have uh, at least some point in our lives to defend our faith, to share about what we believe in. And we need to be prepared for those moments. Let me finish this morning with another two quotes. If the band could come up, that would be great. Um, I'm going to finish with two quotes about our motivation for, um, for defending our faith. The first one's by Tom Wright again, and the second one's by Paul himself, okay? Just to bring a bit, encu- a bit of encouragement about the area of defending our faith. Here's the first one. It's going to be on the screen behind me because it's quite long, all right? So it says this. It says, Luke has been writing the story of the early church, and particularly Paul, in terms of a succession of trials. The gospel is all about God putting the world right. His doing so in Jesus, his doing so at the end, and his doing so for individuals in between, as both a sign and a means of what is to come. Luke wants his readers to see the life of of the church itself in that same way. We shouldn't imagine that people will leave us alone, will not challenge us as to what we're doing, as to how our faith belongs in the public world. If we are the people in and through whom God is putting into effect the setting right that happened in Jesus and anticipating the setting right that will happen at the end, we should expect to see that uncomfortable but necessary setting right going on all over the place. Sometimes in martyrdom and sometimes in in vindication and acquittal as the church makes its way in the world. We should expect it. As the church we are called to be something different, sometimes unexpected. We're supposed to stand out and speak up in many different areas. Stand up and speak for injustice. And by doing that, we will inevitably find opposition. We inevitably find people who want to challenge us and question us. You know, not always negatively, but sometimes out of sheer curiosity as to why we're different. If people are asking us questions about our faith and wanting to find out more, then we're obviously doing something right as Christians. 
But the final quote I want to share, and then we'll, we'll, we'll sing at the end, uh, is from Paul himself during his trial with Agrippa. And Paul really captures the heart and vision about why we need to defend our faith and what our motivation should be. Look in verse 28. King Agrippa says to Paul, Do you think that in such a short space of time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And then Paul gives a reply, which I think uh, sums up what our motivation should be for defending our faith. Look at this, it says, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me may become what I am, except for these chains. I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Wow. That's our motivation for defending our faith in front of others. That's our motivation for sharing God in front of others because the result of that can be people coming to know Jesus. The result of that can be people being saved. What more motivation do you need? You can impact someone's life eternally by sharing your story. You can lead someone to salvation by using the Bible. What a motivation. Look, we want others to experience what we have. We want others to know what it's like to have our hope and trust in something bigger than this world. We want people to experience that. By being bold and defending our faith, hopefully we can point people towards Jesus. And that alone needs to be our motivation. It's not about looking intelligent. It's not about making people feel bad. It's an opportunity to see people saved and launched, out for gro- for, and launched out by God for a greater purpose than they can ever imagine. That's a privilege that we can all have. All right, we're going to sing a song in a minute, all right? And I'd just like us to worship God. And uh, two things, really. First of all, I talked a lot about our own personal story. All right, I talked a lot about our story and, and, and knowing that you've encountered God and sharing that with others, all right? If you have never encountered Jesus this morning, if you've never given your life to God, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, all right, this morning can be that morning, all right? This morning can go into your story. This morning can go into your story as the moment that you gave your life to God, all right? So if you've never become a Christian, then please speak to the person you came with and, and ask them to pray with you. Right, the second thing is, during this song, why don't we all just pray as we sing and, and ask God to reveal people that we can share our faith with this week. Ask God to put people in our hearts that we can give uh, an example of Christ to this week.